Welcome to the Christian Music Archive podcast, conversations about Christ, community, and music. I'm your host, Dave Maurer. Each week, I am privileged to chat with a musical guest who is listed on the pages of the Christian Music Archive. There are thousands of creative men and women who have helped shape the soundtrack of the Christian faith, and we get to hear their stories, learn about how Christ has made a difference in their life, and hopefully along the way, we'll learn how we can be a better part of our community. Welcome to the 33rd episode of the Christian Music Archive podcast. Man, when I first started this project, I hoped that I would be able to have a few conversations with some of my favorite artists. And for the last 30 plus episodes, that's exactly what we've done. But today, we're going to take a little bit of a detour. Yes, our guest is still listed on the pages of the Christian Music Archive, but not as a performer. Dave Clark is a songwriter who has written a lot of music. So this episode is going to be more of a behind-the-scenes conversation about what goes into writing songs and crafting a great lyric. Dave Clark offers songwriting classes on his website, so I don't want to take away from his business, but he was so gracious to share some of the process he goes through, and if you're a songwriter, you'll definitely want to stick around to hear that. Plus, Dave shares some great stories from 40-plus years of writing music. Well, we'll get to our interview in just a little bit, but I'm excited again to have Doug Hoffman, Executive Director of Mercy, Inc., in the studio. Doug, I'd, I'd love for you to tell us about what Soy Satura is, something you're doing in Colombia, right? Yes, Dave. We are working in uh, northern Colombia, right on the Venezuelan border, at a little town called Cucuta. Cucuta is right on the, on the river, and there's a major bridge that goes across, and, and there are our Venezuelan children coming across the river over to Colombia to school. Why do they go to Colombia to school? Why not in Venezuela? Well, in Venezuela, the, th the conditions are extremely difficult. The, the schools, sometimes the teachers show up because they don't pay them. Sometimes they don't. It's very, very inconsistent. Uh, poverty is extreme in uh, all of Venezuela right now because of the political upheaval there. So we established a little um, little spot there in Cucuta so that we, we are taking soybeans, crushing those soybeans, creating a, a juice from that, and then creating a biscuit from, from the leftovers, and we're feeding the children as they come into school. Because Colombia is willing to teach the children, more than willing, but they're not willing to feed them. Okay. And the Colombian children get a, a breakfast and a lunch every day, uh, but the Venezuelan children were sitting there going, hey, we're not getting fed. And oftentimes this is the only meal these kids will get Wow! because they're, they are extremely poor as they come across. So we're able to uh, provide food for them, nourishment for them. Uh, the moms are also coming across because it's not safe coming across the, the river. And not so much because of water, but more because of the violence on both sides, oh. gangs on both sides. So they're at risk every time they come. But they come, they want to get their kids educated. Uh, we are able to feed the children. We're able to then nurture the moms, work with the moms on an emotional, spiritual, and also teaching them some handicrafts, okay. things that they can do to earn a living uh, within, in Venezuela. The interesting part here is many years ago, you don't think too many years back, Colombia was having the issue and Venezuela was doing uh -huh. extremely well. Yeah. And there was something similar happening at that time. Colombians would go across the river and we're being blessed by the Venezuelan people. And this time it's it's the Colombian people can help. And we, we come alongside, Mercy comes alongside, again, to provide funds and direction for the, the Soy Center project. So if you want to 
contribute to that, go to mercycompassion.org, hit the donate button. We would love to have you help these Venezuelan children. So they're, they're just beautiful as you look in their eyes. Thanks, Doug. I just want to remind listeners that all of the profits from the Christian Music Archive go directly to support Mercy, Inc. You can help us support Mercy by going to christianmusicarchive.com mercy and read about our partnership with them. Or as Doug said, just go to mercycompassion.org and see how you can help provide meals for these dear Venezuelan children. Unless you're an avid credit reader like I am, you might not recognize my guest today by name, but I guarantee you will recognize his work. Dave Clark is a songwriter, publisher, and arranger who has lived in Nashville for the past 40-plus years. He has written songs for Rascal Flatts, Larnell Harris, Sandy Patty, Donny Osmond, Glenn Campbell, CeCe Winans, Al Denson. You get the idea. (laughs) He's written a lot of songs. In fact, He's written at least one number one song in four consecutive decades, and that's with more than 25 number one songs on the Christian music charts. I think Dave's probably pretty good at his job. (laughs) So if you're an aspiring writer, you'll want to stick around for today's conversation because today's interview is more of a behind-the-scenes look at songwriting in Nashville. So I'm very happy to welcome to the podcast Dave Clark. Thank you, Dave. It's so good to be on here with you. And anytime I can talk about songwriting, I'd love to be a part of that conversation. Well, as I kind of alluded to, you have been a songwriter for a long time, uh, 40 years, according to your bio, if we want to talk about that distance in time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can't really avoid it at my age. Everything makes you feel a little bit older than you wish you were, but uh, very, very thankful, very blessed. Well, if you've had a career of 40 years, that must mean you're doing something right. You know, I don't know that I'm doing it as right as I committed to it, and Mm. I felt like it was a call of my life. Uh, I had a fourth grade teacher that evidently asked the kids what they wanted to do when they grew up, and uh, fourth grade Dave Clark evidently wrote on a card, I wanted to move to Nashville and be a songwriter. No kidding. What what, what gave you the thought to do that? I I don't know. (laughs) It it had to have been a God thing. I'd say fourth grade, it may have been six, it was somewhere early in there, but that card found its way to me a few years back. Oh, and uh, I oh. just always, always knew. And I met uh, my dad and mom would take us to concerts and where other people would want the autograph of the artist. I would stand in line as a kid and pay a dollar for the sheet music to get it autographed by the guy who wrote it. Ah. So when did you kind of discover your penchant for writing? And was that music all along or was it, how did that start? It was always, it was always music. And we were raised in a, our family sang, you know, weekends and Southern gospel kind of a style, uh, Gaither kind of songs. And, and I just, I remember the first songwriter I met as a kid, uh, a guy named Ray Overholt. Hmm. And he wrote a song called Hallelujah Square. And I just remember what it felt like to actually shake the hand of a guy who had written a song that I had heard. It was a big deal for me. Yeah. And it's still kind of neat. It's still a big deal. <laughs> yeah. So so you obviously had some musical leanings then. Were you forced to take piano lessons by your mother like I was? <laughs> uh, you know, we, we there were four kids in the family, and we all took for a little bit, but... Uh, I 
I play, but not. Uh, I can't blame what I do on the teacher that I had. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guitar was a pretty easy thing for me, and I I started teaching guitar at a store in music store when I was fifteen, hmm. and uh, it, that part of it came pretty easy to me, and and I still love to play. So. You started playing and started writing songs. When did you finally get somebody to listen to your song and then say, hey, this is something that I might want to record? <laughs> well, it's so I moved to town. I, I left uh, my home in Michigan, left my family when I, uh, two weeks after high school graduation. And back in that day, you know, there wasn't the technology that we have. And I'm, sure. I'm kind of thankful for that. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I came down. I. I had the ugliest car in Michigan, and it became the ugliest car in Tennessee. <laughs> and, you know, there was there was no money. Uh, my parents believed in me, and if they would have had it, they would have given it to me. We mm -hmm. weren't that kind of family. And so I, I just, back then, you could walk up and down Music Row, and you could go in and actually play your stuff for publishers. Mm -hmm. And and I had one publisher that he liked almost everything I'd written, and, and that didn't feel right to me because I knew my stuff wasn't that good. <laughs> I was 17. Mm -hmm. And uh, through a friend of a friend, I met uh, a guy named Steve Spear, whose dad was Ben Spear, the okay. Spear family. Yeah. And Steve had uh, just left the road with his family, and he called me into his dad's studio one night. He, he called, and he said, I, I hear you've got some songs. Mm. And I said, yeah, yeah, yes, sir. I was pretty nervous. <laughs> he said, are they any good? I, I, I don't know. And he didn't hesitate. He said, well, you ought to know you wrote them. Mm. And so he had pretty well intimidated me enough to the <laughs> point where I went in, I played what I probably had nine or 10 songs. I played all of them. He told me later there was one line in one song mm. that made me, made him think there might be something worth chasing. Wow. I knew that was a publisher I wanted to work with. Wow. Cause he was going to invest in something that he saw recognizing yes. that there was room for growth. Yeah. And I, I probably still couldn't get a song past him. <laughs> he's, he's that guy that, that holds the bar high. And I, I don't talk to him a lot, but every six months or so, he'll just text me a quote from a, a song he heard. Mm. And it's just a, a reminder that here's a guy who never wrote, but he helped me define the measure of what a great song should be. Yeah. Well, for our listener, and I know I'm jumping forward a little bit, but I want to, to hook them to stay, you know, why talk to this guy who wrote nine songs and had an inkling of, of something that might be good? <laughs> well, you've now had, according to your bio anyway, you've had 27 number one songs, which means uh, you're working with some people and you're doing some things that are touching the heart of the listener. And so... What I'm kind of interested in, and I, I know you have a course that you do, and I don't want to steal the thunder from that, but I want to kind of maybe grab a master class for our listeners, uh, how to go about honing your craft as a songwriter. Maybe you're not going to be that singer that's going to be on stage, but how do I hone that craft so that it's something that other people can use and that it can be used to glorify God? So that's kind of the hook to keep people toned in. So what happened after Mr. Spear said, I might be able to work with something? <laughs> well, he he took some of the songs and uh, it was, a, uh, they ended up offering me a contract 
and that was a pretty big deal. And I, you know, I would I wanted to write home and say, hey, I, I signed something, but I wanted it to be right as well. Yeah, and it was a pretty defining moment in the relationship with my father, who, you know, my hero, my best friend, but. Uh, uh, Dad worked in a factory, and Mom was a school secretary. And, and when I got the contract, I did what what I would normally do was take it to my dad. And uh, he did he did something that, my gosh, it showed such incredible wisdom. He read it and he looked at it and he said, "I don't know how to advise you." Uh-huh. And I I could take you to the spot where we were standing because the defining moment was. He went even further up in my book for his honesty, and I know yeah. that had to be hard. Yeah. But the other mo- thing that happened in that moment was I decided if I'm going to do this, I've got to learn the business side as well. Yeah. And so it was It was a short time after that. Um, one of the songs that I'd written, um, his dad heard the demo, pulled it out in a comp concert one night with an artist named Doug Oldham. The Spears were singing with Doug Oldham. Sure. And they did that. And uh, that led to a, a cut in 1979 by a group called the Cathedral Quartet. Sure. So when people laugh at me, and I'm, I'm not old enough to make this statement, but it, bizarrely enough, it's true, is that uh, I just got a, a cut a couple of weeks ago, which gave me label cuts in six consecutive decades. Oh, wow. Wow. And you go, well, is that right? You go 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000. Yeah. So was that cut with Doug Oldman? Was that your first kind of uh, recognizing that what you were doing was being successful? Or did you had you had other songs before that that had piqued interest of, in people? No, uh, that that was the the cathedral cut was actually the first cut, and okay, and that was on a record called Sunshine and Roses, and and I mean you got to know I'm I'm waiting by the mail because I I get to spin something on vinyl and hear my song, <laughs> yeah, and it was a big big deal to me. I've heard artists talk about, you know, when they get a song on the radio and the first time they hear it on the radio, how they pull over and call their friends and it was on the air. It was on the air. I can imagine you sitting by your record player, spinning it and listening to it over and over again. And Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the the radio thing is still a pretty big deal too, because you, you, you never, ever take that for granted. And the older I get, I think I appreciate it even more. Uh, that that God has let me do the thing that he called me to do all those years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because one of the buzzwords that I hear a lot now talking with artists is this whole thing of co-write. And I always thought a songwriter is a songwriter, writes a song and records it and it's done, but there's a whole lot more to that. Cause so can you tell us a little bit about what co-writing is and what the purpose of that is? Sure. Uh, I, I, so, so here's the take of an old man on this. <laughs> there, there are a lot of co-writing goes on, and and everybody you talk to will say, "Man, co-writing just makes for a better song." I, I agree with that, but I think if you talk to a songwriter who's been doing it for for more than twenty years, they came into co-writing. Mm. They 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 added that to the repertoire. 
if you talk to somebody that's been writing less than 20 years, that's probably all they've ever known. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't make it better or worse. But I think sometimes co-writing cheats us out of the discipline of busting out a song on our own. Okay. And and a, a funny thing, even three weeks ago, I, I don't write a lot of melodies. I When I heard Don Cook's melodies, I realized I was a lyricist. Mm. And that, that has served me well through the years. And... And every now and then I'll feel a melody. So, so I I wrote a couple of lyrics I really liked, and and I heard music on them. And this was in the last month. And so I I had a guy do a piano vocal on them, and I lived with those for about three weeks. And last week I called Lee Black, a writer friend of mine, and I said, "Hey, uh, I've got these lyrics, and I didn't tell him there I had already had a melody that I really liked." And I sent him to him, and he gave me back something, oh, so much better than what I could have done. Uh-huh. So co-writing, if if you're in the right co-writing relationship, it can make it better. Uh, the, the hard part for somebody like me, it's not that I'm better. It's just that I've been doing it longer. So it's hard for me to find those good co-writing relationships where uh, – I don't feel the pressure. I have to do it all. They're intimidated because I've done it longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has to be a, everybody brings something equal to the party. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I'm thinking about right now is I had just listened, as you can imagine, I listened to a ton of podcasts being a podcast host myself. And I just listened to a conversation with a couple of art writers who said that they seem to think that after about 20 years in the music industry, People have written about all there is to write because if we're taking songs from their experience. Now, you're an anomaly in that statement. You've been doing this for 40 years. How do you respond to that? So you're right. And and not only has everything been written, but but our ancestor writers took all the good rhymes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's it's getting harder to find the right one. But, But when I first moved to town, my very first appointment, was a guy by the name of Don Butler. And Don was the head of the Gospel Music Association. In fact, he was one of three guys that helped start that. Okay. And so a point of history, if you don't know that name, uh, it's, it, it, everybody should because he, he helped give us a platform to do what we do. Mm-hmm. So I had met Don at a music school in the summer, and he said, if you ever come to Nashville, come see me. So I, I moved there. And... <laughs> And so, of course, you make I a beeline for Don. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I walked in. He had this very stately voice and white hair and white beard. And uh, I sat down in his chair. And literally, the first thing he said to me was, You do know that every song's already been written, don't you? Hmm. And I'm, what do you do with that? I'm, I'm that 17. That's your I bubble. <laughs> I didn't even have enough money to drive back to Michigan. <laughs> right. Uh, and and I I sat through that meeting, but I don't know what else he said. And I went out in the parking lot. There's an alley behind the office where, where his office was. And I sat there and cried like a baby. Hmm. And the Lord absolutely is, uh, you know how sometimes you hear God's voice audibly and sometimes it's even louder. Um, <laughs> absolutely said, Every song has been written, but it hasn't been written by you. Mm-hmm. 
And so all these years, even when I write for artists, I, I'm writing my story. Uh-huh. And, and, and so I practice the craft by trying to tell stories well. When I'm telling stories, I'm, I'm actually working on my craft as a writer. And, and so everything that you see my name on, I, it's, I'm in there. My story is in there. So I think that kind of answers the next little question that I was going to ask is, what is it that makes a great song? And it, it has to be personal, right? For me, it does. And I, I you know, I have a measure. Do I, do I hit it on every song? No, but, but gosh, you got to know there are some, there are some things I'm trying to hit a mark on every song. And, um, there, so every song that I listen to becomes my teacher, mm. and and not only is writing a call, but writing is my response. Hmm. And so it, you know, some would say, "Well, a song doesn't have to be real." Well, it, it, that may be true, but it has to be real to me. And so, just because the how do I want to say this? People stop writing after twenty years doesn't mean you stop experiencing life which then gives you more ammunition to write more songs because you're writing it about your experience after that 20 years, for example. Sure. I'm I'm a different person than I was 40 years ago. And, and, you know, we're we're going through this whole COVID thing and it's, it's shut down more um, good things. Mm -hmm. And I, and I hate that, but it doesn't, it doesn't determine my call. I, I get out and walk every morning, and, and when it gets cold, it doesn't mean that I don't walk. I just dress warmer. <laughs> right. And so when, when, when I get to a different age, you know, we, our kids are older now. Well I'm, well, I'm looking at things differently. I'm looking at life differently, but I'm still looking. Mm-hmm. So that brings up a question, and you, you had alluded to this in your answer. You says, it's your call. I would imagine that is why you write specifically Christian songs. Not that you don't write others, but that's why you write Christian songs, because God called you to this occupation. That's, that's exactly right. And God called me. Um, in fact, I was on the phone about an hour ago with, with a co-writer friend of mine, and we were talking about an old hymn, and, and I, I love the lyrics to the hymns. Um, yeah. But but I, I said, hey, you may not know the story behind that, but we were in Iowa uh, at a camp meeting with the Spear family, and I, I played, ended up playing for them for five years on the road. Okay. And I was getting a couple of cuts of record, but God was still saying, I called you to write. And and they were my dad's favorite group. You know, my parents had raised me hearing them. Yeah. And it, it was a success by most measures, but it was a failure because I wasn't doing what God called me specifically to do. And so that night in Iowa, they sang the old hymn, I'd rather have Jesus. But that night they sang, I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus in worldwide fame. And I knew who they were singing to. No, they never do that verse. Uh-huh. And I resigned that week from a job that I love with people that are still like family to me. Yeah. So, so here's a cool full circle moment on that. Okay. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, the week after Christmas, Jason Crabb sang on the Grand Ole Opry. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, I listened to a lot of country music growing up and never wrote much of it, but 
So the, so I got the word that afternoon that Jason Crabb and Jay DeMarcus from Rascal Flats mm-hmm. were going to do our song, Strange Way to Save the World, on the Grand Ole Opry. So that, that's a pretty cool moment yeah. for a writer, no matter how long you've been doing it. Yeah. So I log into the show, and of all things, Jason Crabb opens up his set on the Grand Ole Opry with I'd Rather Have Jesus, oh. and he did the verse that nobody ever hears. And I thought, okay, Lord, I'm still listening. Yeah. The, the thing that if I have moments where I would begin to struggle with ego, I don't think that's my issue because I'm, I'm so grateful to get to do it. But God, God says, hey, remember that song. Remember what you'd rather have. And, it, and of all things, yeah. to put that song right before the song that I, I would have gone, hey, look what we did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you 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 kind of alluded to in your in the early part of our chat about you know you wrote down in your fourth or sixth grade on that card I want to be a songwriter in Nashville. But can you tell us exactly the moment, and maybe not the moment, but the story of how God's call on your life to write music for Him, how that took place? Well, I told you I was raised in a uh, with a in a family where. Uh, the the church was the hub. Right. That that's what our friends were there. That's what we did. Um, uh, it was basically all I knew. And it was a revival service when I was eight years old. And um, the evangelist's name was Reverend Charles McKinney. And back then they didn't call it an altar. They called it a mourner's bench. Hmm. And I didn't know what that meant <laughs> as an eight year old boy, but I knew what it meant when God called me forward that night. Mm-hmm. And, uh, got a hold of my heart. And at that point, the only, when you feel called to ministry, all we really know, all I knew then was, well, that must mean a pulpit. And sure enough, it was a pulpit, but the pulpit was uh, a pulpit of obscurity with a a pencil and pen. Hmm. And so as God began to clarify that, and uh, so I I told you I I came to Nashville, and and I'm still trying to figure out how do I get from this little town in Michigan to what God has called me to do. So I, I knew one guy in town. I stopped by his apartment to see him. And I said, hey, would you like a roommate? I'm thinking about moving down here. And he said, no, I, I pretty much like living alone. And I, I said, okay, but just, you know, I, 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 at some point I'm, I'll figure it out. Literally while we're sitting there, and this is the 4th of July weekend, uh, 1976. The phone rang, and he was a bass player out on the road for a gospel artist. And it was his boss calling to say he was no longer needed. Oh, wow. While I'm sitting there, he hangs up the phone and starts laughing and said, you still want a roommate? <laughs> so, I mean, God has been so obvious. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't take a genius to connect those dots. <laughs> wow. So one of the things that you have on your website pretty prominently is this whole um, idea of song stories as a a mechanism for writing. Would you share a little bit about that? You have a good chunk of the songs that you've written with the stories behind them, which I have to admit was very fascinating to read. I wish I could have written more. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about this concept of song stories. 
Well, and I told you, I I love stories. Uh, I love to connect the dots because it's, first of all, it's a reminder to me of what God was doing in that moment. And I can't, I'm not one that thinks every song should have a, uh, be a song with a story in the song. But I just believe in my heart when I listen to songs, I can tell which ones had a story behind them. Hmm. And I think they need to be drawn from real places. So so my, my thing in telling them is twofold. One is I, I want to write it down to celebrate what God was doing at that chapter in my life. Yeah. The other is uh, Cindy and I have been married almost 40 years, and we prayed for 12 years that God would bless us with a baby. It was a pretty private hurt, and uh, God has blessed us with three incredible kids now. They're, they're all successful. They're champions for Christ. Wonderful. But that puts me a little older than most of the, the, their friends' parents, you know. Yeah. I want them to know what their daddy was like if I'm not around to tell them. So, uh, like, f- tomorrow um, I, on Instagram, I, I post a lot of those stories on my Instagram. But tomorrow will be, uh, you're, you're an old credit reader. You might remember a song called Didn't You Know. It was recorded by Larnell Harris yep. on his Brooklyn Tab record. Yeah. It will be 30 years tomorrow that that song went number one. Oh, wow. So I'm going to put the story behind it, and the 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 co-writer that that was his one of his big first big cuts that he ever had, and and uh, I, I want my kids to be able to, if they ever want it, to look back and know what I was going through. That these weren't just rhymes that I sat down to write; that they came out of real life places in my relationship with the Lord. Yeah, yeah. I've heard of of number of people talk about the fact that they, you know, Oh, you have to throw one more song on the album or, or the record company's asking for. And so they just throw something that they've really been wrestling with or, Oh, this will never make it on. And it turns out to be the biggest seller of the album because it's <laughs> born out of that story that is very real to them. Right. Absolutely. And, and the, those places I I can't remember dates very well. Like I, I, I struggle with names and and numbers and stuff, but I can I can tell you where a payphone was in a lobby where I called home from. I mean, I remember the pictures. Yeah, and the pictures are what drive the stories, and the stories are what drive the songs for me. I've told this story on the podcast a number of times, but um, I can tell you Best Western's phone number because it was set to music. <laughs> And, I love it. And for me, the music is a language that touches deeper than our ears. It really affects the soul, and it helps us remember. I think that's why you know scripture memory is easier with music. Uh, why you remember specific songs because uh, oh, this happened when we got engaged, or this happened when we lost right. our child, or whatever. That that music touches something so deep. And to have that then paired with a story that touches deep, you've got a pretty potent combination. Well, and the, and you rely, 
you rely on the Lord to inspire you and to, uh, I talk a lot about learning to listen like a writer. And that means that sometimes I hear things that they didn't even say. Mm. Uh, but when you learn to listen like a writer, uh, you, you, you just start to pull concepts out. And it's like, uh, uh, the young writer in me would say, oh, I had a Bible that had the synopsis at the top of every page, and I, I could just scan through there and, and find hooks. Well, that's not going to work out very well. <laughs> but if you read the pages to get the word in you, all of a sudden the concepts come alive, and there are songs in there that you just you never, you know, and, and you always struggle with, well, surely somebody's written that, but but I haven't written it. Yeah. And I, I'll keep going back to that because that was such a turning point in my thinking. Well, and it's part of the reason, isn't it, that we have so many people, you know, when you talk about apologetics or you talk about, I mean, even business principles and stuff, we're talking about the same principles, but there's 105 books on it because it's written from your perspective or their perspective. Right. And that can change everything. Right. And, and, so I, I told you I got saved when I was eight. I left home when I was 17. Uh, I wasn't much of a student in high school because, you know, after all, I was going to move to Nashville and be a songwriter. Yeah. Um, so when I was 45, I enrolled as a first-time college student. Oh, wow. And uh, it took me five years because I did it all online, and I graduated with a bachelor's in uh, – uh, pastoral studies, which meant, you know, uh, theology. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that I wanted a, a better job or it was, but it dawned on me at a certain point that I, as a lyricist, unfortunately had become a bit of a theologian for a lot of listeners. Hmm. And I'd never studied it. I'd lived it. So I spent five years connecting some dots. Mm -hmm. And and what I look back at and see is that all those years, there were a lot of songs that were, you know, Crucified with Christ, Philip Scargandine. There, there were a lot of songs that were taken from Scripture, and somehow the Lord protected my theology mm -hmm. that I didn't know. But that didn't give me an excuse to yeah. <laughs> skate through it from then on with that. So did you find rooting yourself in the Bible enhanced then the ability to write songs? Uh, I don't know about writing songs, but it sure made me a better person. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, you, you hope that spills over into the songs, but, um, you know, at, at a certain point you, you have to count on uh, the Lord to inspire you, but there's also a discipline that you have to say, uh, I somebody asked me one time, what's the difference between a songwriter and somebody that writes songs? Well, somebody that writes songs gets up and they decide, um, today I'm going to write a song. A songwriter doesn't have a choice. Hmm. And and you, you have to write, and if you don't, you'll absolutely go insane. So for you, it's like breathing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and that 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 makes you you know you, I'm sure you've interviewed enough artists and, and and writers that a lot of them talk about being an introvert, right? And, and 
I think that especially songwriters, they understand a different level of lonely because a lot of times it's just them and their idea. <laughs> it's like talking to yourself. Yeah, you do, and you you talk out loud, and 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 you know you say that, and I don't. I've never heard anybody talk about this, but I, I learned to play guitar by ear. Well, you hear a lot of musicians talk about that, but I would. What I don't hear people talk about is I write by ear. Huh. So if if it doesn't sound right when I read it out loud, it's probably not right. Interesting. It's got it's got to sound right in my ear, and I know that that. That's a little twisted, but hey, I'm a songwriter. It's supposed to be. <laughs> well, and this question is going to be coming from the non-songwriter person. I'm ultimately I'm an accountant by trade. I'm a numbers guy. That's why credits are so appealing to me. I love it. But I've heard so many people talk about here's this great song, and there was only one line in it that was any good. I mean, you talked about that with Mr. Spear, who said, you know, well, this one little piece from that one song is the only thing that was good out of there. What makes a good song and what makes stuff that you should just throw out and start over again? <laughs> You're probably asking the wrong guy because cause I, could, I could give you eight hours on that. Because <laughs> I, uh, I hear a lot of stuff that, uh, in fact, if I'm in a co-write and somebody says, that's good enough, mentally I've just checked out. Hmm. And and I think for me, there are different levels of listening, just like there are different levels of writing. And I think a great song, you're going to hear something new each time you hear it. And if I get through the whole song and I feel like I got everything that they said, that song probably is not going to last as long as they want it to. Um. So, so let me give you an example of that. Yeah. Are you you're familiar with an artist named uh, Joseph Habedank? Yes, absolutely. So, Joseph is in recording this this week. Um, he he cut one of our songs that I wrote with he and Don Cook. And every, there's this, I I don't know how many I have I have a couple on there maybe, but but there's one that I can almost guarantee you. It's going to end the record because it has to. And you're not going to get it the first time, but you're going to get something enough, hopefully, that you're going to want to go back and listen to it again. Mm. And every line in that song is, if I if I could, at some point in the conversation while we were writing it, we said, you realize that if we keep going down this road, nobody will let you cut it because it's, it's, it's taking it too far. Mm. And Joseph said, I'll deal with that. And and I love, love, love that. So is that a great song? Okay, it is by that measure yeah. for, for my ears. But somebody else is listening for the up-tempo radio song. And they, so they're, they're going to blow past the song and miss what it was trying to say. Because for them, the great, well, so everybody has a different measure of what's a great song. Yeah. And so through the years, I've tried to write what I think they want, but it's still got to hit my filter of what I'm reaching for. Uh, I've got a couple of songs out there <laughs> that that I could blame it on the co-writer, but ultimately I settled for something <laughs> that I wish I hadn't of. And my friends still dog me about it. Hmm. 
Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I can only imagine how much of a challenge it is to say, okay, how do I write a song that's going to touch multiple people's hearts? I mean, because I'd imagine you have probably a file cabinet full of songs that will never see the light of day. There's something personal for you. Whereas there's these gems that get released that people hear and then some of those become, well, 27 of them, something that resonates with everybody. That's got to be a tough, I, I don't know. Uh, to me, that seems like a tough measurement to, to make. But if you're trying, it's like what, with your show, if you're trying to please everybody out there, you've already failed. Right. So you have to, you had, at some point you had to say, this is what I think will make a great podcast. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're accountable to. And so I can't say, I can't begin, I can't even predict what my family will like, (laughs) let alone the marketplace. Right. And so I have to write things that, boy, I feel it so passionately. I can't let it go. Mm. There's a song, uh, you you wouldn't know this because I don't talk about it a lot, but uh, for 19 years, I dealt with a pretty bad throat disease. Mm. Um. May 1st, uh, 30 years ago, God completely, immediately healed that instantaneously. Uh, never had so much as a scar. Wow. And on that day uh, of the healing, we wrote a song for a brand new artist named Al Denson called Will You Be the One? No kidding. And uh, the story behind that. So so anyway, you... You don't you don't know that till about me till just now. Right. But if you went back and you looked at a song like "Why" by For Him, mm-hmm. and it starts out, well, they say that in every life some rain must fall, for the pain is no respecter of the mighty, the small. But sometimes it just seems so unfair when you see the one who's had more than his share. It makes me wonder why. Well, you go, well, of course, yeah. But but for me, the the deal is, can I take my story and the passion that I felt about what I was going through and write it down in a way that it's true to itself and true to what God placed in my heart? And then it's up to God what, what plays on the radio. I can't control that. Sure. Yeah. Can't worry about it. And and I had a publisher tell me early on, you'll probably get a lot of cuts, but you won't get much radio. And I, I said, well, that's okay, but why do you say that? And he said, well, you write too vulnerable. Hmm. Awesome. That's a trade I'll, I'll make all day long. Yeah. And and I feel that like one of the blessings has been that God has surrounded me with artists through the years who were willing to take a chance and say something vulnerable. Well, and that goes back to what I stated earlier about some of the conversations of those songs that were born out of the true angst of the soul are the ones that really connect with people because ultimately, yeah, the poppy, beboppy, those are fun things. Uh, you know, the party songs are fun, but what really connects with us is I've got that angst as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, and you can't... You start trying to analyze the market for what's going to be the single, that'll get you into trouble too. <laughs> right. And we, we had a song, uh, it, it, it won a, a dove, I think, a couple of years ago with Karen Peck, a Southern gospel artist. Right. And it was called I Know I'll Be There. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a big old, you, you put all the things you think should be a single right now, that song doesn't get anywhere near the list. Mm. And yet, 
the people were responding to it. Yeah. And so it was kind of like a fourth single while the new record was being released. And and who knew? Yeah. yeah. So I think there are a lot of vulnerable listeners driving up and down the road that just need to know they're not alone and what they're going through. Well, Dave, you shared a lot about your story and you shared a lot about how you kind of have seen God's call in your life and have pushed that forward. Now in this uh, stage of your life, you're spending a lot of time helping others learn how to be better songwriters. What does that look like and how does, how does that work in your day-to-day life? Well, it's not, not necessarily a new thing. Uh, I, I feel like God has always put me in places where I could hold the door open for people that I believed in. Mm. And a a great example, do you know the name Sue Smith, if you read credits? Yep. Yep. So years ago, Sue sang with her family, and they were in St. Louis, and they booked the Spears, and I was a young guitar player, and Sue's family did three songs. Well, after the concert, I went to her, and I said, I'm not a publisher, but boy, those are great songs. (laughs) Would you let me take them to my publisher? And she she said yes. And so I I took her songs to Ben Spear, and and I end up being her first co-write. Well, she's she's like family. Um, the the mentoring process is to let somebody know that you've got a champion here. I, I can't teach them how to think like a writer or listen like one. Uh, but if that passion is there, then we can talk about the craft. Then we can try to raise the bar. And so uh, I do that on a daily basis with with writers. And then we have the song steps, which is a more direct. It's uh, actually teaching classes. Mm-hmm. And people can, can participate that by going to uh, your website, right? songsteps.com. Right. Yep. And we'll put the link to that in the show notes here. So if there's a aspiring writer that would like to do that, or even an existing writer who'd like to go to the next level, uh, they can look into that. That's great. And the, the whole thing for all of the classes on there is what do I wish someone would have told me early on? Mm. Yeah. And back in that day, there, there weren't teachers. There weren't, uh, yes, we did have, uh, electricity but uh, <laughs> but but I was at a, a a summer music camp that my parents sent my sister and I to because we I don't know how they could have afforded it but they got us there and every morning they would bring in a different artist and they would do a concert mm. and one morning the artist was an artist named Gordon Jensen do you remember that name I do know Gordon yep and he had a group called Sunrise, and they sang, and Gordon began to talk about songwriting. Well, I'd never heard anybody talk about it. Yeah. And he talked about how you got to get there. you got to say it in a different way. you got to get and, – and the lyric that he quoted was never a hit, but he started talking about a song he wrote called The Glove. And and I'm sitting there, you know, I'm in high school, and, and this guy's talking about what I'm passionate about. And he quotes this lyric, and it says, Just an empty glove lying on the table is my life without the master's hand. Huh. And every light that could go off went off. Yeah. I got I got it. Yeah. And and so, you know, I I wanna be I wanna be that 
encourage or I want if you got a question sometimes it's publishing sometimes it's uh, the business side that that I didn't have anybody to teach me and and God has blessed me by by surrounding me with with godly counsel when I needed it yeah. but I want to be that for the next generation very cool well you may have gotten your theological degree in at 45 but you got your degree at the school of hard knocks a lot earlier than that <laughs> and <laughs> And, and you know what? That degree will earn you absolutely nothing. <laughs> well, except for a lot of friendships and a lot of relationships yes. with people who will make a difference uh, when you really need it. So That's right. Yeah. So thankful. So blessed. Yeah. Well, Dave, I really appreciate your time today. We always end our podcast uh, asking how we can be praying for you in the weeks and months ahead. We have a list that we send Uh, an email out to, and uh, I'd be honored to share something that you would like us to pray for. How can we pray for you? Pray for me by praying for all these artists that are are just struggling right now with this this COVID thing. It's shutting down opportunities to minister, and uh, I I sit in my my little room and I do what I do, and, and, and God is just gonna have to change the landscape once once more and, and he's perfectly capable of that uh personally i'm on the home stretch i'm about two weeks away from finishing a biography of a, a country artist and i've never done anything like that it's been a long pursuit i'm on the last couple of weeks of that and uh just just want god all over it it's it should be um should be a depressing time, I, I suppose, in, in, in so many ways. If you let the news and everything dictate that, it can be. And yet, I, I love the opportunity of saying, "All right, God, you have leveled. We've leveled the landscape. Now teach me. I'm, I'm, I'm going to trust. I'm going to follow. And and it's not just me. It's all of us that are called to ministry. It's the local churches. It's the choir directors. It's." Uh, Uh, I I just want God to be obvious. I hope you enjoyed this behind-the-scenes look at songwriting and some of the stories of how God has directed Dave Clark's career. It is my hope that by sharing stories like Dave's, it encourages you to use the skills and giftings God has given you to help advance the gospel. Before we wrap things up today, I want to remind you to help support Mercy, Inc., I am so excited about the work they are doing around the world and honored to help direct people to that ministry. Visit our webpage, christianmusicarchive.com slash mercy to learn how you can help transform the world through compassion. And you can also help support Mercy by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash ccmexchange. I hope you will join me in being the hands and feet of Jesus around the world today. As always, thanks for joining me for this conversation today. I am grateful that we get to spend this time together each week hearing stories of God's amazing faithfulness. As a regular listener to this podcast, would you mind taking a few minutes and rating it on your favorite podcast app? Reviews and ratings really help spread the word so that other folks can hear about these great conversations. And if you have comments or questions for me, please feel free to drop me a message on any of the social media platforms. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon by searching for at CCMExchange. Or you can always drop me an email on the website, christianmusicarchive.com. 
I'm really looking forward to our time together next week when I have another great conversation with one of the musicians you'll find on the pages of the Christian Music Archive. So until then, remember this, God loves you. In fact, he's crazy about you. <laughs>